Welcome to the Coach and Doc podcast, hosted by Coach Chris Cutcliffe and Dr. Hunter Taylor. Our mission is to bring you insight from the best of the best in the coaching profession. If you'd like to learn more about the work we do at Coach and Doc, please visit our website, www.coachanddoc.com. Our next guest is Jeremy Utley, author, teacher, thought leader, and, and the list could literally go on and on. Um, he's the former director of executive education for Stanford's renowned D-School. And Jeremy now spends his time writing, podcasting, and advising numerous leaders from across the country on how to embed design thinking into their disciplines. His latest book, Idea Flow, offers a perfect summary of what Jeremy does such a great job of communicating to the masses, how to be more creative. He's also had the unique privilege of being my college roommate at the University of Texas, and I'm so excited that he agreed to do this. I hope you enjoy this episode with Jeremy Utley. Tell you, if, if you want to hear it, I could tell you a funny story about my kids. That's for sure. And, and well, I'm not going to say no, so go ahead. <clears throat> All right. That's good. Thank you. I, I would be a bummer if you said no. So <laughs> how, how do I start the story? Okay, so we've got... You know, a six-year-old and a fourth, or, no, sorry, backing up. We have a sixth grader and a fourth grader, both of whom are reading, you know, books on Gladys Allward, who's a missionary, and um, and the Island of the Blue Dolphin, which is about a um, a Native American woman who is kind of abandoned on the, I don't know if it's Channel Islands or somewhere. You know, she lived on an island by herself for like 20 years. It's an amazing story. They're reading great literature. And of course, at the dinner table the other night, I said, and what do you think of idea flow? To which both of my girls, my older, who are capable of reading such a wonderful literary work, responded, dad wouldn't have time to read it. I'm like, girls, in your free time, just in your, you know, every day they've got quiet time, just in your quiet time, you know, you're listening to like Chronicles of Narnia for the 19th time. You're listening to uh, you know, that Andrew Peterson book, whatever it is, for the 25th time, just like for a week, you could read my book. And they're like, well, why? <laughs> so I go, well, you're always, and so I looked at my uh, 11-year-old sixth grader who's always like trying to make money, uh, you know, by hook or by crook. It's like, I'm like, hey, Evie, would you take out the trash? She's like, how much are you going to pay me? I'm like, that is not entrepreneurship. Okay. So that's like the standard <laughs> interaction. And I go, well, Evie, you're always wanting to make money. You know, read my book and it, you'll learn how to make money. And she's, so she perks up. And I go, you know what? Actually, how about this? If you read my book, I'll pay you $50. And then, there, and then like, of course, the nine-year-old's like, wait, what? Yeah. I go, yeah, both of you. If you read the book and importantly, and try at least one thing to make money. If you don't make $50, I'll pay you $50. So I'm like, it's, it's like an emerging thing in my head. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, the book is about how to start businesses and come up with ideas that can create value for people. And mm -hmm. if you create value for people, you should be able to capture some of that value. And I think you can make way more than, I think you make a thousand dollars. And then, you know, the 11 year olds, like her mind just got blown. I was like, Hey, you realize that like a 13 year old just signed is like a professional athlete in the United States. Okay. <laughs> like you don't have to be an adult to make You're money. So they're, they're already like going, wait, what? I was like, yeah, why aren't you guys starting businesses? So now we're entering, it's like whole new conversation. Like, wait, we can start a business. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, of course, what are you talking about? So you go, well, 
And Evie said, wait, do I have to read the book to start a business or can I just start a business? <laughs> they go, no, I mean, I'm not going to pay you 50 bucks unless you also read the book, you know, because I actually want you to read it. But if you can start a business today. She's like, well, what kind of business? I go, I was like, we'll start with a problem. I was like, what, what do you, what do you see annoys me? And she goes, you hate all the Amazon boxes at the front door. I go, absolutely. Um, what can you do about that? She's like, well, I could break them down and bundle them. And I'm like, I I'd pay you for that. So now, but it's like, but I'm not your user here. Or like, you know, don't tell me because that's, you know, that's a very small market. But like, you know, she goes, well, I was sitting on the tree the other day in our backyard and I looked into our neighbor's yard and they've got like 30 boxes back there. I'm like, yeah. boom, now we're in business. I go, okay, so why don't you write them a letter and see if you can get them to uh, be a customer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she's like, well, what do I say in the letter? And I go, why don't you take a first pass? And then if you need help, I'll, I'll give you feedback. So I kid you not, and I can probably pull it up. She would hate that I'm showing you this. This, this legitimately happened this like two days ago. She writes this note, which is just awesome. So you can see it there or it's on my phone there, but uh -huh. it says, dear Mr. I'll blank out his name. Um, I have seen a lot of boxes in your yard from our tree. This is our first draft, by the way. I've seen a lot of boxes in your yard from our tree. I am starting a box breaking business and was wondering if you would be interested. I will collapse the boxes and bundle them up. It will be 25 cents per box plus $1 total for bundling them up. Please put your answer on the porch of our address. <laughs> Clear instructions. Yeah. I go, I don't even have to iterate this. Like, this is, this is amazing. You should just go drop the letter off. Mm -hmm. So she's like, okay. So she's like, what should I do with that? I said, well, you put it in their mailbox. You can put it on their front porch. And she gets really nervous. I said, Evie, the worst thing that can happen is they say no. That's like the worst thing. And then, by the way, you could just use that letter like a hundred other times, put it on a hundred other, you know, neighbor's doorstep. Mm -hmm. So she's like, okay, I have an idea. She's like, I don't want it to, I don't want to put it in the mailbox because she, she's under the impression that opening someone else's mailbox is a crime. Okay. So, which is good. I want her to believe that. Um, so she goes, I'm going to get an orange and I'm going to put it on their porch and I'm going to put the orange on top of the note so the note doesn't blow away. I said, that's a great idea. So she goes over, she does that. And then um, to end the story, just because this is an absurdly long story now, um, the neighbor texts me. This is a new, like a new couple. They've just moved in like two months ago. We don't really know them. Um, but the neighbor texts me. And he's like, hey, um, our tenant, they have a tenant in their back house. Our tenant just sent me a photo of your daughter's letter. Uh, we're vacationing for two weeks, but tell her we are in and uh, we can we can work out the details when we get back. Fantastic. So I'm like tucking her. I'm tucking her into bed and I'm like, hey, you've already made your way. And I'm thinking now, I, you know, it's like. Mm -hmm. If it's 30 boxes, you know, it's seven bucks, eight bucks. I'm already $8 towards the, I don't have to pay her $50 to read my book. So all that to say, things are great in the Utley household. That's, that's the, that's the point. I expect nothing less from Evie being your daughter that you told me that story. So it's, well, you know, the thing is, it's easy actually to compartmentalize, right? It's like, I'm not, mm -hmm. I mean, even though they, you know, they see the book and, you right. know, I have copies that are like sitting here and I have a obscenely large poster that someone sent me with the book cover. Yeah, there you go. You got that too. So I have, uh, you know, like they see it around. I'm not like talking about you know, anytime I 
mention work. It's like we have kind of mostly strict rules around, hey, don't mention work at home, like try to try to avoid. But then the reality is there's like there's a lot of practical value here that Mm -hmm. for somebody and it's not like you have to be, you know, 40 years old working at, you know, Coca-Cola to benefit from this stuff. It's like an 11 year old can be identifying problems and and generate solutions and you know, it's like she probably doesn't want to be in the box breaking business for the rest of her life. But as an 11 year old, if she can, you know, she can sign up 10 customers. That's not a bad deal, right? Totally. I catch myself, especially talking to my oldest about mm-hmm. the highs of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Just to, And he'll get really interested and we'll talk there because he's kind of interested in the same things. But I never mm-hmm. talk about the mundane, the the downward part of the roller coaster that is you know, trying and testing things out. So mm-hmm. I probably need to do that a little bit more too, just so he's got a full picture. But I Reality. do I do like talking about what I'm doing and trying to give some insight because I can remember I, I have great memories of when my father would do that with me about mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. The fact that I remember like how he lit up, how passionate he was, that made it really interesting too. So it's yeah. it's uh yeah, you, you can't fake that authentic, no. you know, curiosity. And I mean, yeah. I got, I was into it. I'm like, oh, you could do this. And oh, you can totally. do this. You know, it's like, um, I mean, and the, the $50 is somewhat of a ploy because I genuinely believe, I mean, for a yeah. nine and 11 year old, it is, it is so achievable to make yeah. 50 bucks doing something. But I, what I realized actually, is we're sitting at the breakfast table the other day and I said, it is like, they're looking to us to do like onesie, twosie, make a buck or two here or there. And the market isn't very big in their minds. Right, right. They're thinking about, well, what do neighbors need? And what, right. what's, what's, what are problems in other people's lives? So even just cultivating that kind of problem awareness, um, I think it's it's a tremendous gift. That's a, that's actually an assignment that that folks at Stanford have given since like the 1960s. It's called, they call it keep a bug list. I, I remember just, I've got one. Yeah. After just write down stuff that bugs you. Yeah. I might not call it that, but the, yeah, it's exactly that. Like what, what would make my life easier? What would make this person's work easier? So it turns out is it to is. state the, to state the exceptionally obvious that a problem is a necessary precondition to a solution. For sure. And we go, I want to generate novel solutions. You go, okay, well, where's your problems? Right. Yeah. Simple. All right, I'm curious about a couple of things that I wrote down, and that's why Come one on. of the big reasons why because I never get to talk to you. Come on, what uh, this is like Zach Morris like calling is that dad? Is yeah, this the only I need the big phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a podcast, otherwise, you know, unless this is the only way I can get you on the phone and I get something out of this, I'm not talking to my old college roommate. Come so, on, get out of here. <laughs> I'm trying to play around more with like. Uh, uh, and I don't know if you've written about this or you think a lot about it, but like the flows of it of a full year. And I mm. know your kids, I didn't know that they were, that y'all were homeschooling. So I think that would mm. probably change some things when you're talking about the calendar, when, you know, you've got them full time compared to, you know, when they're in their grades or something like that. But like, mm. how did you, I, I was curious, like, how did you spend your summer? I remember I tried to play with some stuff like mm. on how I did my routines is is to see if it would recharge or, if it was a chance to maybe try something different, yeah. to see if that would bleed over. And I wanted to know from you, I guess, how you think about that aspect of your overall year, if there is any change, 
Uh, you mean with the summer? Yeah. yeah this year is weird because this year is actually, uh, you know, I, I left full-time employment at Stanford. I'm now mm-hmm. just an adjunct. I left. So that kind of changes a little bit of my relationship with summer. Historically, the way summer's worked is it's a time for us to do a lot more stuff in the world where, you know, we've, we got courses, call it September through June yeah. that pretty much anchor us in the Bay area, you know, with the exception of maybe a little bit of travel here and there. Right. And so you got kind of mid June to mid September where it's easier to travel, easier to engage with the organizations. Historically, we've done that. I would say there's, I don't know what the seasonality will be now. Um, but you know, having, I taught a class that ended in June. So having kind of recently been in the mindset of, you know, going back and forth to campus and then not insofar as that is a, um, you know, illustration or a, or kind of an analog. I think, I think the, the, the thing that's hard to, um, to keep track of, at least for somebody like me is all the various, experiments that are kind of running at a given time. And I've actually got them on a board here because sometimes I can forget, you know, I'm talking to somebody and I realize because for any given, you know, potential partner, collaborator, customer, there's kind of a bunch of different things I could do. Mm -hmm. And so, and and they're not always top of mind for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And like I was talking to my literary agent the other day and she's like, Hey, give me an update on what you're up to. And I spent probably 45 minutes talking about like three things that were kind of top of mind for me. Mm-hmm. And then almost as an afterthought, just mentioned this other thing that's come up and that's what she gravitated to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, she's, and then she's, you know, she's been pushing me. We're kind of developing this, you know, kind of a uh, little bit different uh, thread of, of thought leadership potentially. But all that to say, having, at least for me, certainly the calendar plays a role in season, coming back to the question of seasonality in a minute. There's just a question of is, are the various initiatives or projects or, or topics of interest, are they kind of visible in my environment? Um, and, and a calendar is an important kind of manifestation of that. I haven't found that I can necessarily map directly to my calendar always, maybe in terms of meetings, if stuff is, is kind of meeting centric, but for me, just having things up, like, I mean, I'm just looking at this list here and it's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I haven't done. And it's kind of, it's almost like, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you ever felt this way. I remember right after we graduated from college, I was in the habit of, you know, I had a 30 minute commute in morning and night and I was kind of in the habit of like rotating through all, you know, all of our good friends. It's like, I want to stay in touch with them, you know? Right. And it's kind of like, who am I going to call? Well, it's like, who's it been the longest since I called? You right. know? And that's like a, that's not an actual list, but it's kind of like a, a little bit of a running list. I think similarly right now, even as I look at these kind of post-its on my desk, there's a similar kind of which one, you know, if I'm going to stir the fire a little bit, which one needs a little bit of energy, which one needs a little bit of attention. And I don't know, actually, I mean, even even as I look at them now, I'm not. Yeah, I have, I can say I have meaningful kind of experiments commissioned in a bunch of different buckets. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think, uh, setting aside seasonality, one thing I'd say about the calendar is something very simple, which is like, if you're a person who comes up with ideas, you have to, uh, eventually the question is going to come to your mind of what, which one's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And 
you can use your gut perhaps, but I find that that's, we have very poor intuition around what's going to be a good idea. Uh So the only, which is to say the only way to learn what's a good idea is to try something. Um, you don't have to know. So if you just take those two things, you're an idea haver and you got to try stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, so it's August 22nd right now we're talking September 22nd. It stands to reason if I'm an idea haver and I don't know which one of my ideas are good, that in the week of September 22nd, I'm going to need to try some things in order to make some resource allocation or bandwidth allocation decisions in regards to this, the new ideas I've come up with. Well, I don't know about you, but if I, if I wait until the week of September 22nd to try to make time for an experiment, that's a lost cause, right? Yeah. I actually, the time to book that time or to block that time is now. Before I know what the experiment's going to be, before I even know what the ideas I'm going to try are. Mm-hmm. And so actually, almost like similar to kind of the big rocks theory of time management, recognizing trying stuff is a big rock activity, even if I don't know what I'm trying. Mm-hmm. Unless I presume the world isn't changing, there's no longer a need to do new things, Right. In which case, you know, if that's the case for you, I mean, congratulations, you found the one part of the universe where things aren't changing, right? But for most people, stuff's always changing and they've always got to be kind of pivoting and iterating. And then, so if you if you take that as kind of a, the a priori, uh, you know, reality, then the question is, well, when it comes time to try things, do you have time to try things? Right. And a lot of people don't. Because right. they're, cal- you know, they're the, the way I kind of picture it is just like, you know, Tetris when we're kids, yep. just like all of these like blocks come in and I'm just sh- moving them to fit and everything fits and I fit everything into my calendar. And I go, oh man, I need to try something. Well, I don't have any time to try it. Mm-hmm. And unless you actually set aside that time without even knowing what you're going to be trying during that time, it's really hard to make progress on new initiatives. Uh-huh. Anyway, that's, that's kind of what you triggered for me when you're talking about calendar. Man, I'm glad I'm getting to talk to you. So two things popped into my minds that I like I've into my mind that I've thought about. I'd love to ask you, and this weren't these weren't questions that I had originally put down, but like so one aspect when you get more and more free time, or like you're not anchored by an institutional position, right? Like you just left, and I'm guessing you have you probably did that for more freedom, more creativity yeah. time, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is there also though like a part of you? Like we've got these traditional institutions also that are kind of like at their best versions, like they're the ones responsible for the common good. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like things in them from routines that have been established over time that are really hard to change. Yeah. And it's almost like I almost feel like this tug of like if you completely go away from them, it's almost like you're abandoning something that not very many people get an opportunity to do, which is that freedom aspect. Mm -hmm. And I guess I I catch myself really admiring people that will labor in the constraints Mm -hmm. that certain institutions have, and they're trying to make them better and trying to get more autonomy and more freedom. But at the same time, they recognize that these things are serving a lot of people. And so like, I mean, you've had plenty of experience in a higher ed institution. So that's one example, right? But I mean, this can be anything from a a K-12 setting to, you know, a lot of people are leaving. I feel like, or you're hearing more and more anecdotes of people leaving those like a K-12 school district 
because of opportunities for more flexibility, that you're paid better, et cetera. But mm. it's like you, you don't hear about the, 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 the speech that I don't know if it was generational of like, I feel called to be in this space and mm. help these kids and that kind of stuff. So just wanted mm. your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of different ways and it's not unrelated to like AI. I realize that seems like a nebulous connection, but there's a, there's a way in which you use AI to create a lot more space. And there's a way that you use AI to do a lot more stuff, right? You know, and people are concerned about AI insofar as it means we can downsize, we can do what we've been doing with many less people. That's one way of kind of viewing it. Or we can say, wow, the people that we've got, you know how much more we can do with them? Right. I think there's a similar kind of thing in a lot of those environments is like in regards to someone's goal. Is your goal to get more and more competent so that you can fulfill, they call it minimum requirements with less and less of your attention, bandwidth, effort, et cetera? Uh -huh. Or is your goal to get better and better so that you can do more and more? And I think that's... I. I actually don't want to place a value judgment on either. Some people might say, you know what? Right. The priorities I have outside of this institution are such that they they compel me to get more efficient at what I do so that I advantage so that I can coach my kids sports team mm -hmm. or whatever. Right? I think that's mm -hmm. that's a it's impossible actually to objectively measure the trade-offs there. I think it's a very deeply subjective thing, but that person who's motivated to, to, to be able to do their job more effectively so they can leave earlier to attend to other things that are important to them is spectacular. And the person who is motivated to do things more effectively so they can take on more responsibility and get a promotion or get a bigger scope of work, you know, is, I think it's a, uh, it's an equally laudable, you know, uh, ambition. Um, but kind of that, I think it's important to note what is your, what's the goal? Is your goal to create more space outside work? Is your goal to, to take up more space inside? Is the goal to grow? You know, I, I, one thing that's interesting there is in a lot of institutions, there's this kind of fixed, you know, take a higher ed, there's kind of a fixed enrollment. It's not like we're going to serve more people. Right. Right. Whereas, you know, if you work at Google, you want to serve more ads you know, right. or whatever, right? right? If you work at Twitter, you want to serve more, you know, uh, tweeters or whatever you call a Twitter user. Um, but what's weird is in, in a lot of academic environments, it's like, well, our capacity is blank because maybe mm -hmm. it's limited by physical space or, or you know, uh, admissions, you know, uh, target, right? I don't know. Um, but it's, I've found it just speaking from, from my own experience it's harder to define growth when some of those kind of call it market incentives or market metrics that, that are, you know, colleagues in the commercial sector are grappling with have been removed. Like what does growth look like in the context of higher ed? It's, it's not that it's not there, but it's a little bit in service of what, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a different question. So that's anyway, that's, that's kind of how I, how I interact with that question. Well said. Uh, second question that popped in my mind, you know, you get asked to advise companies, leaders, et cetera, right? And you're an ideas person. Mm. You've always had a gift with teaching and, and, and breaking something down. And like, that's your gift. I've known it since I was, since we were 19 years old together. Mm. Mm. So I'd say this, give me advice on how you approach when you enter those roles of, 
maybe like uh, expectations on both sides. Um, and so like, hey, I'm you're getting ready. There's a CEO that says, hey, Jeremy, I'd like you to to come kind of in my world and help help me kind of navigate this whole thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about initial uh, expectation talks that you have with that person. And then also, if you wouldn't mind, tell me maybe like how, like the pace of information that you give. Um, so, and I'll give, I'll give an example to that. And I had somebody yeah. once give me some advice that said, Hunter, you need to be very careful of when somebody sees you as like an answer to their problem and they see you in a certain way about one thing that's ailing their, their place, their company, mm. because then after a while, you'll be a visible reminder of what they're not good at or what their company, what they're struggling with. And then mm. there will be a lot of shame in mm. uh, mm. when they continue to have interactions with you. And, and then that's when kind of like, you know, there's a communication breakdown, et cetera. Um, that's interesting. Talk to me about your thoughts on those two things. Yeah. I mean, in terms of dosing information, uh, to use a word, I would yeah. say being very targeted. I mean, there's a, there's probably kind of some kind of context setting, level setting, understanding where there are gaps, you know, and I have a series of questions that I typically run through around, all right, well, let's talk about the, where, where do you, why are we in this conversation? You know, usually if somebody's coming to me, they're coming to me because, right. They've heard something or seen something or feel something. Okay, well, what is it? Let's talk about what that is and what of maybe what you heard of me on a podcast or whatever, what's lacking, what was motivating to you, what resonated with you, et cetera. Usually there are some kind of capability gaps that emerge either at a personal level or at an organizational level. And there's there's obviously two components of that. But one is what does it look like to address some of these organizational change, uh, you know, needs um, and then what does it look like to lead through or to help the organization address those things, which are kind of two different questions. Um, I believe that, uh, and for example, an, innov- an innovative organizational culture has to be one where experimentation is a part of the, you know, fabric and DNA. Well, you might agree, but what is an experiment to you? You know, one, one very simple thing that we can do is, Hey Hunter, you know, if you, if you're going to engage me to, to grow your, you know, innovation capacity. Okay. No holds barred in the next, we're going to meet again in two weeks, run an experiment and just tell me, tell me how it goes. And I'm not going to, and you go, what's an experiment? You tell me, that's fine. Well, how do I do it? Do it however you do it. Um, not that's not like a gotcha thing it's like but it is a level setting if somebody comes back and says hey here's what i did and what they did was they surveyed five people okay now i know what your experiment is you know if they planned but they haven't done anything now i know what the culture around action is right (laughs) if they which is it's almost like you know you go to a doctor or physical train you know some kind of a fitness trainer they uh, they take a walk around the block with you and they go oh hey i noticed that your left heel drags right and okay uh, and now try to touch your toes oh i noticed that you it's almost like in the movement you start getting a little sense for what are some things worth addressing and then stuff emerges a lot of it is really emergent and what i enjoy about relationships like that is that there's a just that it's a relationship 
Whereas an event, you know, if you run a workshop, that might be a useful way of either uh, building momentum or enthusiasm. It might be a useful way of communicating kind of shared language. It's not really useful from a, um, uh, in and of itself, it's not going to accomplish transformation. What you need is a relationship and accountability and um, attention over time. And so for me, what I really like about those relationships is the chance to, um, to walk with and grow with and be available to someone. And sometimes, you know, we don't even know what we're going to talk about next week, but there's probably going to be questions that emerge and we can talk about what's, what's happened, how the, you know, in-flight initiatives have been going, uh, other questions that have come up. I mean, in, you know, in, almost every environment things are changing right and between now and our next conversation you've got a administration meeting or like a you know the, the academic council meeting that's going to throw you a curveball and because we already have time on the schedule now we can talk about oh how like what is that with the administrative change how does that impact your course planning you know for the next year right and so it's almost like it's it's like a creative consigliere kind of a relationship, for lack of a better word. Expectations, that question. Anything, um, so, anything that's like super important to you, like when you take on a client of like, hey, um, I just want to know that these three things that we agree on, and then, yeah, let's do it. Well, I would say that if uh, there, there's got to be there's got to be a kind of a minimum time together to say, hey, let's just do this and let's just see how it goes. And like, you know, we can both kind of cancel at any time. I think that's a real mistake because sometimes there are uh, there are fits and starts. Uh, I Another expectation that's again more. So one is like, OK, minimum of three months. We can't we we can't work together unless we're working together for a minimum of three months, right? That's one thing. Another thing is we've got to have a, a cadence of interaction, and then a third thing is I want to uh, have access to your team, meaning I don't want to only be talking to you. I want to talk to others in your organization about their experience, about what they're seeing, about how they're feeling, about how they're perceiving you, and that's just from a you know even expectations kind of an early in a relationship phenomenon not that they don't have to continue to be managed but you start to get a much more holistic picture um in those early interactions and it's only it just provides color and perspective that you don't get because you don't know what you don't know but if i talk to you know eight of your direct reports they're going to tell you some things they're going to tell me some things that will probably be useful to me to know. And they might tell them to me in a way that they won't tell them to you, not because they're trying to keep secrets or they're right. backbiting or anything like that, but it's just, it's a different relationship. Well, you know, for me, one of the things that I was, um, I think this is actually, this is kind of the heart of a lot of my transition. Um, one of the things that I've been disappointed by is actually the lack of impact I was able to have at Stanford. Um, I know that sounds strange because I had the the privilege of, you know, probably teaching close to a million students of innovation. Mm -hmm. What we know is about educational in interventions is that the success of an intervention is largely a function of the context to which the learner returns. 
Meaning you come to Stanford, you have an amazing experience. Well, what dictates how well you apply the tools that you learned? It's actually the environment that you return to. And yet, and so to me, that's that's a that's a profound realization. Danny Kahneman, as an aside, but it's related, talks about how there are two kind of forces, the, the equilibrium of which leads to behavior. One is what he calls a driving force, meaning what's the reason to do it. The other is what he calls a restraining force or what's preventing you from doing it. And he said what's what turns out to be profoundly counterintuitive is that the much more uh, the much simpler way of accomplishing a behavior change is not adding driving forces, but simply removing restraining forces. Oh, and if you think about that idea of restraining forces and the idea of context, the context to which the learner returns, the primary restraining forces to acting more in, in an innovative manner or generating new solutions and possibilities are actually the context, the bureaucracy and rules and red tape and schedules and IRR, I mean, there's like a thousand different ways of saying it. It, it, legal compliance, every organization is different. The thing that's, that I was, over time, I became more and more attuned to is one, we don't teach people anything about combating restraining forces in their environment. Like basically what we tell people is you're going to encounter resistance and you got to push through it. Okay. That's, unsatisfactory to me. Two, we don't admit people with any regard to the environment or context to which they're returning. Meaning, if I feel if our goal was to accomplish maximum impact, we would seek to admit participants or students who are primed to work differently. And yet, there's no part of the application or, or you know process that actually evaluates someone's context. And so for me, um, that's a, going back to your question about what are some kind of the initial conditions you could say, uh, for success you want for me, I want, I want to be, if, if I, if I have the, you know, the, the privilege of being picky, I want to be working in environments where I have not only the ability to equip individuals with tools to use, but also the ear of the context holder or the person who's responsible for shaping context so that those people can be successful. And to me, it's actually the, having both is critical. And I spent, you know, 12 years and a lot of times a CEO would bring us in or like a, you know, right. some senior level person, but it's basically a learning and development initiative, you know, and it's as long, and the, and the success criteria is do people have a great experience? Not, necessarily tied to business outcomes, you know, or, and not that, not that people having a great experience isn't important. I think it is, it should be, but there wasn't that connection to business outcomes in as direct a manner as I would like for it to be. And so one of the things that's important to me is when I'm working with leaders is, do I, do I feel confident that you are willing to, as a leader, to shape context for folks to work differently, one. And then two, do I have the ability to interact with the people who need to be working differently and actually be provoking them to work differently? You know, and I mean, I, like I'll give an example. There's a CEO of a restaurant company that that I've been working with for years. And, you know, they've got a few hundred locations around the U.S. And he and I were talking the other day, or I think I had talked to... 
I think I had talked to the head of, I've got, you know, monthly call with the CEO, a monthly call with the innovation team. And I was talking to the innovation team. They have this idea for like a, for a dessert innovation, which has, there's, there's a lot of logistical complexity. It's like, are they allowed to do what they want to do legally? Uh, logistically, can they pull it off? Right. There's all of these considerations. Um, but for me, you know, none of like legal and logistics don't matter if desirability is not there, you know, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of foundational design thinking 101. It's like test desirability first. But because of like this obsession with legal and logistics, like we can't put a freezer in the in the foyer or in the waiting room of the restaurant. It's like, well, why not? <laughs> if it if you knew it was going to drive 10 bajillion dollars of revenue would you put a freeze yeah you would right okay so it's mm -hmm. it's unfamiliar and it would take like an argument with the ops team but it's not like impossible right so anyway i had talked to the innovation team and then in a subsequent call with the ceo i just emphasized i actually wrote on a post-it and just put it up and i, I don't think i have the post-it here but all it said was should we is greater than can we and I just emphasize to this leader, the thing that you need to be testing for right now is not, can we, it's not running the idea through legal and running the idea through the ops team, all of whom, all of their incentives are to say no to anything that's potentially uh, questionable. I mean, dangerous to, to the brand, right? Not dangerous to a customer, right? Um, and I said, should we is actually the way more important question. And the way you answer should we is you put the offer in front of customers and you see whether it's compelling to them, right? And so I had that conversation with him. Well, then uh, 24 hours later, the head of the innovation team sends me a photo of a freezer, you know, like the kind that we had kind of been discussing in the waiting room of one of their restaurants. And his text to me said, should we is greater than can we? You know, and I realize it's like there's a loop that gets closed there that, you know, I didn't have to say that to the innovation leader because I became aware of a situation with the innovation leader. And I knew that I had a call with the CEO who I know earnestly wants to embed rapid experimentation and kind of customer driven innovation into the business. I all of a sudden that system works. Right. And so to me, that's, I would say it's probably like the ideal scenario where there's a really senior leader, ideally CEO or, you know, potentially others, but, um, and then, and then a team who's positioned to actually try new things. And if I have a relationship on both of those levels, then the, the, um, the speed with which we can make progress is just incredible. I'll give you two more questions. Because I know you got uh, you got stuff to do. I love uh, it. Come on. I know of one team that you're working with, right? Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't mind share how the Idea Flow guy helps professional sports. No, <laughs> how the Idea Flow guy helps professional sports. I mean, professional sports one are just a you know a, a passion area of mine is super uh, intriguing and fun. And there's tons of emotion there. And anytime, as you know, from your time at the D school, emotion is a really rich area for innovation. So um, there's that. Um, but how I can help, I mean, there, a lot, there's a lot of legacy mindsets in professional sports. There's a lot of, this is how we've always done things. There's a lot of institutional knowledge. There's not a lot of outside perspective. We've seen, you know, with like the three-point revolution, for example, in basketball, 
or, um, you know, the athletic mindset in NASCAR, my friend, Andy Papa kind of revolutionized the pit stop by bringing an athletic mindset into NASCAR, which the tire change was never believed to be. It used to, people used to think it was an honor for the most experienced mechanics to get to do that. Right. Well, Andy changed that. But the point is you see these kind of outsized moves take place when someone has kind of a paradigm shift, uh, the West coast offense, right. Being a function of, of a, of a team's realization that their quarterback can't throw more than 15 yards, you know, which is just fascinating. Say so drew up an entire it's, playbook around, uh, you know, it's running, it's running out of short passes. We're going to do the same thing. Yeah, It's amazing. Right. Yeah. But so there's all these examples, really cool examples of, you know, fresh perspectives and radical thinking, driving outsized returns, money ball. I mean, there's the, the list goes on and on. Um, so to me, it's fun, you know, and, uh, for whatever reason, I I don't know why, but I've just, I've had the privilege of getting connected to a handful of sports folks. I've got another sports team. You know, one thing we haven't really talked about, but is free spend where basically got a fund or an investment vehicle that looks for unmonetized assets effectively inside of organizations that they've built to solve their own problem, but they've never thought about kind of monetizing that or taking that solution to market because it's not what they it's not what they sell to their customers, right? They're the customer. But if they think about other companies like them as a customer of this internal thing that they've built, a lot of times there's an enormous business to be built there. Anyway, uh, and I can give examples of that. But anyway, what I was going to say is um, there are sports teams that realize, well, we built internal or back of house functions that could service the rest of the industry, you know? So there's all sorts of layers that I find myself kind of playing in. Um, I had an amazing call with a, with an assistant GM of a NBA team the other day where he's, you know, he's reading idea flow. He's bursting out the seams with ideas and eager to kind of increase his team's chances of, of taking home the trophy. And that's, it's really fun because there's, there's a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of um, they know that every in, in sports, especially every competitive advantages evaporate. You know, once you do something, it's everybody knows it. Yep. Right. And so you've got to continuously innovate and they're mm-hmm. constantly looking for strategies. So I've, I, my uh, methodology is particularly well-suited to environments where folks know they need to change and sports, professional sports is an environment where constant changes, whether they feel they can do it or not is different, but the necessity I think is fairly well established. I always thought it was such an advantage when you have someone like yourself or or anybody that uh, can look to ideas outside of sports to bring in because it's such a copycat industry. And most of the time, like you may try and steal idea from another level, like what high school steals college, college steals pro. And then even it returns right back around. But for somebody to, steal something outside of their context well that's an advantage you know right oh it's huge it's a tremendous advantage yeah yeah totally i love that thanks so much for doing this dude my pleasure anytime are you kidding me i enjoy it just a chance to cut it up with you bring it on i hope thank you so much for listening to the coaching doc podcast we know there are a lot of podcasts out there so we're grateful that you chose us if you'd like to learn more about the work that we do please visit our website www.coachindoc.com.